I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Shark. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is Monday, March 29th, 1976. At the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in beautiful downtown Los Angeles, we are here with the 48th Annual Academy Awards with a menagerie of hosts once again. Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw, George Segal, Goldie Hawn, and Gene Kelly, all of whom are considered the host of this ceremony. Um, we are back on ABC. I just want to mention real quickly, ABC... Uh, was airing our ceremony for many, many years, um, and NBC took over for a little while, and now ABC has it and will have it as long as I can think ahead. (laughs) Um, Still has it to this day. Um, Anywho, so it's been a good ceremony. I Big suspense over who the winner's going to be. Could you just go ahead and... Hand us the envelope, please. The best picture of 1975. And the winner is... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew East, One Flew West, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. (laughs) Thank you for the poetry. Um, I love how every ceremony, my introduction somehow becomes longer because I think of more things to say. Um, right. <laughs> as if you've stuck with our podcast long enough, you know I started out and pretty much just said the date, the location, and we went right to the winner. But for whatever reason, I've just felt the need to give you all of this superfluous information every single time. So I it hope seems, you enjoy you know, that. I can't edit necessary. myself. It, it <laughs> is. Worry. It is. I mean, like, ABC uh, has been the home of the Oscars since 1976. So I know. It's so exciting. A... You know, we're slowly chipping away at what we are um, used to seeing and that we're going to be seeing in a couple of weeks now on April 25th with this new ceremony. Or I guess when this airs, it'll probably already be done. Never mind. Take that away. But you know what I'm saying. We're getting so close to what we... <laughs> What we see today on our screens, the fact that we've switched back to ABC, that is a very important milestone. Another important milestone, we now have our second movie to sweep the top five Academy Awards. Uh, This is the first time it's happened since... um, What's that movie called? It happened (laughs) one night. Oh my god. Yikes. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) That's the one. It happened one night. Uh, Yes, Cuckoo's Nest does the same. I wanted to ask you, though, Rance, question. Why, 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 why did the top five Academy Awards be considered what they are instead of including the supporting actor and actress trophies? Why aren't they included in what we now constitute the sweep, the top sweep of the Oscars? How come it's picture director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Do you think it's because the supporting trophies weren't in the original, original ceremony back in the late 20s, early 30s? Is that why we don't include them in there? Um, I, I think that's part of it. I think uh, it's also maybe because uh, typically movies are, think- are thought of as having a leading man and a leading lady, you know, mm-hmm. and then... True. 
how big or small the supporting cast varies, you know? Um, so I think uh, you always think like, well, there's the, who, who's in it? And then you say an actor or an actress, you know? And, and so it, it right. kind of becomes, I think, um, uh, just part of the, part of the uh, stereotype of what a good movie is. You know, you have, you have the two leads, you have the director, you have, uh, and you have a good script. You know, I would argue personally that film editing is just as important as any other um, element of a picture. But uh, for whatever reason, these are the five um, that people gravitate towards. And interestingly, the three times that this has happened, the only five Oscars that those three movies won were the top five. Ooh, that is interesting. Isn't wow, that interesting? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so it's a clean sweep, but um, it, it's not uh, anywhere near the landslides that we see uh, when uh, Ben Hur or Titanic, you know, True. win their awards. True. So it's it's just an interesting. Um, but you're right. Footnote. Yeah, I see your point that the the royal flush of the Oscars, as you will, would constitute one producer, one director, an actor, an actress, and a writer, and that's kind of yeah. I guess the five. Well, I think that's a good analogy too because components. Yeah, I think people think of the number five too as being a very, even though it isn't a round number, it's like um, mm-hmm. it is a number that's you know like a royal flush. You know, it is. It's yeah. like a game. A big number in games. So it makes sense that five, the big five, you know. Yeah. It sounds true. It sounds really good. So it does. And it does. yes. And this is an interesting year to talk about that. Um, I look forward to, um, I mean, like, I, I, I'm willing. I, do we want to do snubs or spotlights first? Because let's um, do snubs unless you have a reason you want to spotlight first. Um, well, I was just going to lead, uh, let's go to snubs. I'll get, I'll get to the rest of my point later. Oh, wait, it, it's cool. a, it's a cliffhanger. Ooh, okay. We love the suspense. We'll put a pin in that for now and let's do some okay. snubs. I only have two snubs. Uh, the first one is in the documentary feature category. I mm. am baffled that Grey Gardens oh. is not included on this list. <laughs> I knew exactly what you were going to say as soon as you said that. Right? Um, I think it's one of the more famous documentaries, at least in recent years, as people have rediscovered it, especially after the uh, the movie came out with Jessica Lange and Drew Barrymore. I think mm-hmm. so much attention has been given to Grey Gardens now. And yeah, I find it kind of a very odd omission at the 1975 awards. Yeah, it is really bizarre. I um, It's such a original you know what i'm saying it, it's it's oh, yeah. like the first of its kind in a lot of ways and i wonder if that's maybe part of it maybe it's part uh the fact that it is so different than documentaries were when it came out in a way that's almost less about a topic and more about just people's a sad it's like almost a precursor to a reality show <laughs> You know? Yes. No, very much um, so. You're right. Yeah. And so I think that maybe it, it might have been considered a little bit more lowbrow when it came out. And so maybe that's why it didn't make it in. It, it's interesting, though, because it was successful in the 70s. It's not like it's not like it didn't 
do well for a documentary. It was in all the magazines at the time. Um, it just, you know, got more attention later on, uh, thanks, I think, in part to the HBO telefilm and the restoration and re-release of the documentary following that. It has, of course, as you and I know, uh, been quite a part of gay culture <laughs> since then. Um, and, uh, I mean, a few years ago, a friend of mine, two friends of mine, uh, girlfriends of mine, uh, went as Big Edie and Little Edie to, uh, you know, the WeHo Halloween party and walking down the boulevard, you know, um, got a couple of uh, nice <laughs> gay guys yelling at them, Big Edie, Little Edie, you know. Um, absolutely. No, yeah, I mean, Drag Race has absolutely brought <laughs> Big and Little Edie into yes. the topic of conversation amongst homosexuals, for sure. Quite the scandal, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, like, uh, legendary. Yeah, that's, that is bizarre, Sam. That is a very good point. And I would say, you know, I compared it to reality show, but let's be clear here. This is beyond, you know, what we think of as reality TV. This is, uh, this is, it's fascinating and poignant and, and beautiful. Yes, and I believe deserved a nomination. The other thing that I think is such a glaring omission is in the supporting actor race. I don't... Mm. I don't know if I want to live in a world where Robert Shaw is not nominated for Jaws in Supporting Actor. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. I, I cannot wrap my head around that. I don't get it. And every time I think about it, it makes me so angry. If anything, for the monologue he has about the shark, you know what I mean? Like... That is such a gripping piece of filmmaking and acting that I can't understand how the Academy doesn't nominate him for that, yet they nominated him for um, playing King Henry, you know, which I think is such an overperformance. And here you actually have him being understated, and it's so good. Why do you think he missed out? I, it's really funny that you brought this up because that was going to be one of my snubs, actually. Um, I think that he, I, I was thinking, I was thinking about Jaws and thinking about the fact that it doesn't have any, any uh, performance Oscars. And, you know, my first thought was like, oh, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little ensemble and, you know, um, I, I suppose, you know, this, that, and the other. But then I thought like, oh, but that monologue that Robert Shaw gives on the boat is just one of the best pieces of acting, probably in any Steven Spielberg film. You know, um, and and then I just was like, how is how is he not here in this conversation? Now, admittedly, um, you know, I uh, have not seen uh, The Day of the Locusts. So and I really do like Burgess Meredith. So I don't really want to <laughs> take away anyone's um, nominations here. Um, I do think it's interesting uh, that the I, you know, I also would mention that um, uh, I really, I wonder where um, uh, John Gazal's nomination is for Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon, yep. Wyoming. You know, um, and I I appreciate that somebody, Chris Sarandon, is there for Dog Day Afternoon. It's But I, I also wonder that that's not the performance I remember from the movie. You know, no, um, I mean, it's kind of, it's, you know, it has, it's problematic when looked at today. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, 
so I don't know. I uh, yes, I mean, and I can see why. I can see why they probably felt in 1975 that's the one they they wanted to give the nomination to. But I think the I think in retrospect, um, you know, I John Gazelle is always amazing, and I would have loved to see him nominated. But um, yeah, that is so interesting. I don't know where he goes. I don't know who goes out. I don't know. Um, whether or not, you know, Burgess Meredith should be subbed out or not. I will say that there is an argument um, in uh, uh, next year (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, uh, for Burgess Meredith to potentially be a winner. Right. um, Which we can unpack that... uh, next year because uh um that's a very heavy acting category next year yep um but uh ah gee man you just like uh, this is it's really confounding isn't it (laughs) yes well because here's my argument is not only do i think that uh robert shaw deserves a nomination but i think he should have won this category I, far and away, he should have won this category. George Burns is great. He's cute. He's adorable. It's a very sympathetic part in Sunshine Boys. But this is not Oscar material. You know, this is... I mean, it's This is it's a glorified honorary career. award. Exactly. That's Oscar exactly what it is. Career. But that yeah. could have been what this was for Robert Shaw as well. You know, he's been nominated before. Yeah. He's a seasoned yeah. performer. And here you have his greatest role, in my opinion. It could have been the same kind of storyline. Oh man, this, I, it, it, it really does. It, it really bothers me now that you've brought this up. Um, cause I was gonna, I was gonna highlight it too, but the more, the more we get into the discussion, the more upset it makes me. Gee, Sam. <laughs> I know, right? It's ridiculous. I don't know how to, okay. Well, what other steps yeah. do you have? Is there any that I had that I didn't mention? Um, well, I think that. Steven Spielberg not being nominated for Best Director is odd. Mm. Yes, yes, you're right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you like know, I didn't even write that down, but you're right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cry too much over that because he clearly gets plenty of recognition later on in his career uh, mm-hmm. and for very deserved um, work. But Jaws still remains probably one of his two or three best films. Yes. And yes. it's an extremely taunt, incredibly well-made thriller. Um, and, uh, you know, I um, I think Spielberg is a great director. I do feel that sometimes, uh, you know, when you get away from his, his major works, he can be a little paint-by-numbers, you know? It's, it's like they're all competent, they're all good. But it's not like they're usually reinventing the wheel. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think he's just always just a consistently really, really good director. But there are, uh, as opposed to, and I'm comparing that to where I feel like with uh, Hitchcock or Kubrick, you know, the the movies they have almost consistently reinvent the wheel in their greatness, you know. Um, with Spielberg, his strength is really just the fact that he's always really, really good. But with Jaws, um, and uh, a few, a couple other of his films, he that's where he really breaks the mold and becomes something 
more than just a really good director. Jaws reinvents the wheel of cinema. Um, and it is so much more than a, a blockbuster. Did anything I just say make sense? It did. And what I want to actually okay. jump on that as well is where I think maybe he misses a director nomination here is because I think people forget that Spielberg is actually a genius at at um, bringing people onto his movie. He knows the right people to contact to do their yes. job to the best of their ability. And we have that here on Jaws with John Williams' score and Verna Field's editing. They greatly um, increase the value of the movie. You know, they they are as much a part of its success as Spielberg is at directing it. So I think that might be where they overlooked Spielberg, but gave the editor and score uh, mu- music its due. Um, I agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about like, well, you know, Josh was Jaws was saved in the editing room and all that stuff. And I, I think that definitely... Uh, I, I, you can see how those elements really, really helped. But movies like Jaws just made me, made me kind of wish that um, as great as it was that Spielberg would go into movies like E.T., um, mm-hmm. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, uh, I, I kind of, um, Jurassic Park, I, I kind of wish that he had spent uh, more time making out-and-out thrillers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you um, see time because... and time again, Spielberg, I feel like, has always tried to prove himself, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he was written off very early in his career as just being a blockbuster director, you know? He doesn't really make important movies, which I think is, you know, a, a really under-characterizes his material, especially his output in the 70s. But this is only his, like, second feature film, you know, I think there was still some proving that the Academy wanted to see before they give him a nomination. You know, they might have thought this was kind of a one-off, kind of a fluke, especially after I'm sure everyone was reading and hearing about all the problems that were on set for Jaws. You know, they were probably thinking, well, it's this Mm -hmm. young 25-year-old director, so of course it's a mess. And then the movie's good, but they're like, well, it can't be because of Spielberg. It must be because yada yada x y and z so and so you know so i think yeah because of this omission and director spielberg goes on just a like a you know a run of amazing movies trying to prove to people that he is more than just a director of big pictures he also can deliver big messages and we get that more later yeah particularly particularly in the um in the 80s when he really starts to move away from just straight blockbusters and yeah. does like uh, uh, The Color Purple and um, uh, Empire of the Sun and movies like mm-hmm. that. So um, Definitely. Anyway, uh, we'll have a lot of chances to talk about Spielberg in we will. Uh, the years to come and talk about, you know, his uh, fascinating, intricate legacy, legacy and the way that he changes uh cinema in a way because um jaws you can't understate this and this is where him being skipped out for best director is so interesting in retrospect because jaws really does change um for better or worse the way that movies are marketed the way that they're released the way that 
they're formulated. And um, unfortunately, not all of the movies that come after Jaws are as good as Jaws, you know. Um, and I'm not <laughs> right. talking about I'm not talking about Spielberg's output. I'm talking about how you know multiplexes and blockbusters become the norm. And yeah. uh, what we are witnessing right now in the '70s, uh, you know, you see the undercurrent with Jaws. In a couple years, we'll have another space movie that also enters into this conversation. Um, but what this, um, what's happening in the '70s, is setting up this blockbuster period in the '80s. But during the 70s, we have such interesting, intricate, gritty output um, in terms of art cinema that has a, main, a mainstream appeal. Um, and that is something that is almost an unintended consequence of what studio heads see in Jaws. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not putting that onus on Spielberg. I'm putting that onus on, on, you know, people, money-grubbing studio heads who think, like, well, right. this made a gazillion dollars, so let's only make this type of movie. Yep, so. totally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because um, how... Can you imagine a world, Sam? Like, just imagine a world where One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest makes as much money today as it did in 1975. I mean, yeah. that is a really, really good point. Yeah. We or Nashville. Into... Or Nashville. Yeah. You know, I like mean, how... You're right. You're right. Yeah. Because these are you're like so box right. office hits. These would not mm-hmm. be box office hits in 2021. That's... Oh, no. You wouldn't be able to find like a big studio to distribute these movies today. They was, these would be independent production companies. They would be like an A24 release. You know, they would be the tiny production studios would be the ones behind the pictures we're seeing when... Um, back in the 70s, which is incredibly interesting. You're right. In fact, this kind of brings me to a movie that I want to spotlight, if you're ready to transition. Do you have anything else you want to mention in snubs? Uh, no, I think whatever you're about to bring up will probably go right into where I'm going. So Beautiful. All right, so this week I do want to spotlight the movie that receives the most quote-unquote technical Oscars of this year. I'm talking about Barry Lyndon, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, This movie tells the story of a young, low-class Irishman, who is Barry Lyndon, played by Ryan O'Neill, who gives the Irish accent in this movie the old college try. It's awful. I'm just one step ahead of the law myself. I killed an English officer in a duel, and I'm on my way to Dublin till things cool down. Just know that going in. He does not give the Irish <laughs> accent its due credit. Uh, this film takes place during the mid-1700s. What? Ryan O'Neill, oh, yeah. the great Shakespearean <laughs> and method actor Ryan O'Neill can't do an Irish accent. I am so shocked. I be, would never be. have... But, but for real, though, his last name is O'Neill. You would think... Like, you would think. You would think. Oh, well. But no. Nice try, Ryan no. O'Neill. Glad you're here. You're pretty. <laughs> and boy, is he pretty. So this movie chronicles his life during the 1700s as he rises to upper-class nobility and then his subsequent and quick fall afterwards. 
Uh, this movie did win four Academy Awards, art direction, costume, score, and cinematography while being nominated for three others. And I just have to say this, uh, this movie wins the award for probably being the most beautiful movie of all time. It is stunning. I can't stress that enough how beautiful this movie is. And after reading a little bit about Stanley Kubrick's approach to this movie, everything makes sense. He wanted this film to resemble a painting, one of those classic gigantic paintings you see in museums. And that's exactly what the movie feels like. Uh, I mean, you could honestly pause <laughs> this movie at any point, and what you're seeing on the screen is just visually dazzling. It all looks like it could be taken from the screen, printed out, put it directly on the wall. He even goes so far as to frame and shoot many of these scenes completely static without any interaction or movement from the actors. Uh, instead, what he chooses to do is have uh, a narrator. There's like an omniscient voiceover that kind of appears sporadically throughout the film telling you what's going on. And he puts the voiceover over these static shots with no movement except for the camera. The only thing the camera is doing is slowly zooming out um, of the frame until it finally comes to um, rest and then it reveals kind of the final tableau of the shot. So Spielberg, or not Spielberg, <laughs> Kubrick gives you kind of a glimpse at first and as it pulls back you get the full picture of what's going on and you actually see the full artwork materialize and it's, my god, it's just breathtaking. Um, Kubrick also talks about the runtime as well. I need to warn people, this movie is over three hours long, and you would think coming from me, that would be a detriment, but this is a movie that I think warrants its three-hour runtime because Kubrick talks about how during this day and age, the mid-1700s, everything took twice as long <laughs> to do anything, really. Uh, you know, from getting yourself ready to walking across a room, a hallway, even the glances that these characters give to one another, they take so much time as well. Everything unfolds very slowly, but that's all on purpose because things just took more time. A great example of this is how in the film, every single room interior space is enormous. And instead of cutting to an actor like walking into a room and then just approaching somebody, you see the actor walk into the room and walk the entire length of the room to where the other characters are sitting, you know, across the way. And you see every single moment of that actor walking across the space. It's so fascinating. Like, you would think you would want to cut that dead space out, right, to make a very tight movie, but he doesn't. He wants you to see how long things took during this day and age. Um, yeah, he just has you sit and watch every second of it, which is fascinating. And I think a really cool approach to filmmaking, too. You know, it's as close to cinematic art as I think we've reached up to this point, which is why I think its wins in those technical categories really set a new precedence uh, for future winners, kind of like what uh, like Mad Max Fury Road did, you know, a few years ago. We look at that movie now and go, wow, this is a technical marvel. Barry Lyndon is basically the Mad Max Fury Road of the 1970s. Let me put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, but I also think it's one of Kubrick's most underrated and probably lesser known or seen movies, too. So I just wanted people to be aware of it and give it a chance. I think you'll be surprised when you watch it just how gorgeous this movie is.
Well, that's as ringing endorsement of I, as I've ever heard of anything. Um, thank yeah, you. I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to say, my uh, I, I want to spotlight a couple of things. But um, my first spotlight is taking things in a very different direction. <laughs> um, I would like to spotlight the work of art, really, that is Anne Margaret's performance in the movie Tommy. You don't answer my call with even a nod or a twitch, but you gaze at your own reflection. Um, <laughs> yes. Tommy is a rock opera that uh, is, I guarantee you, it is the most bizarre movie you've ever seen. It's based on the Who's rock opera album, Tommy, um, which is about a psycho, somatically deaf, mute, and blind boy who becomes a pinball champion and religious leader. I was just reading the log line, uh, so I can't take credit for that exact language. Um, but the cast is um, pretty fantastic. Oliver Reed, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, Elton John, and Jack Nicholson as well. Um, and uh, and Anna Margaret plays Tommy's mother in the film. And just, if you get the opportunity, just watch clips of her in this movie on YouTube. To, to say that her performance is committed would be an understatement. You're adored and you're loved. Thousands watch you play. Pimba, it's a fever. And you're the master of the game. Um, she gives into every jerk, tear, word that she has to sing. Because again, it's an opera. She's singing the whole time. And she is just moving as if independent from her body. Um, at all times, uh, and it's you. It's one of those things that's so ridiculous and such high art and so stylistic that you can't necessarily tell whether it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen or the most bizarre thing you've ever seen or the campiest thing you've ever seen. And somehow it's probably simultaneously all three at the same time. But let's just say this very expressionistic, this very um, uh, over-the-top movie has a moment where she is sitting, watching a television commercial for baked beans and dish soap. And um, in the course of music, the baked beans and soap... Um, the products being advertised on television that um, are supposed to be what housewives want, which is part of the meta-messaging that's happening within the whole scenario, explode from the television, and and margaret very committed, uh, begins to roll around and writhe within this concoction of baked beans and soap. Um... And if that doesn't give you an idea of what this movie is like, I don't know what else will. But uh, to say it's committed is very, very true. Um, I'm really very happy to see her in this category because of how bizarre this is 
it's not something I can say in good faith is a winning performance, but it is the only thing of its kind ever created on film. <laughs> All I have to say about that is that you had me at baked beans and rolling around in them and now that's all i can think about when i hear ann margaret's name <laughs> it's once you see it you can't unsee it it's just one of those things like what i'm also like kind of picturing like uh, a tommy barbarella mashup i don't know why but like it's giving me that I vibe mean, the style <laughs> the visuals are not unlike barbarella and you're not you're not incorrect so, <laughs> all right, let's get into our main event rants. Let's talk mm -hmm. about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Brief plot yes. for those who haven't watched this movie yet is the story of Randall Patrick McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson. Uh, who avoids going to prison by claiming insanity. So he's sent to a mental institution instead, where he befriends the other patients, but finds a bitter enemy in the institution's head nurse, Nurse Ratchet, played by Louise Fletcher. Um, okay, I want to hear your thoughts, Rance. Tell me what you think about this movie. Um, this is my first time watching, as you know. And, oh, yes, um, I love that. Uh... You know, it, 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 you you run into this problem sometimes with movies that are as herald as something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where they don't always live up to expectations. But I am happy to report that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, is very much the great film that everyone um, says that it is. It's uh, it, it builds its its um, atmosphere in such an intricate and careful way where uh, particularly in its handling of the character of nurse ratchet where you know she she kind of starts out um in the background and doesn't doesn't you know seem like too much of a villain at first you know um mm -hmm. but the way that they slowly build her character in that conflict uh, is very indicative of how the movie very slowly introduces its conflict and and just lets it build with the atmosphere and lets you get to know all of the different characters and lets you um, become a part of the, the mental ward, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then that makes it to when you get to this finale where, you know, this awful stuff happens, you've been a part of it and you feel yeah. like you're one of the inmates along with them, you know? Um, it, it's just a, such a carefully crafted film. It builds it's such a, an easy, um, not even, not leisurely, but an easy pace mm -hmm. that, that really makes for a tremendous payoff um and what i think is a truly great film ending oh yeah um, no i think what you're touching on here with that atmosphere is really really important this this movie is very atmospheric and i think there's just something so real about it when you're watching it you know these don't really feel like actors 
you know, it doesn't feel like um, this is someone playing a nurse or these are people playing patients. They all feel very lived in. And I think a lot of that has to be credit to the preparation. I mean, this cast of actors spent time shadowing real people in real mental hospitals. And they did all their rehearsing at hospitals, too, just to get the feel for the movie just right. And I think it really pays off when you do watch it. These characters jump out at you. And they do feel really lived in. And and I think you're right as well when you mention... The ending, all of a sudden, it just seems like all this harrowing and awful stuff happens. It's almost like the build that you just described is kind of like a build to a party, right? It's like everyone's having a good time. You know, McMurphy is making sure everyone's having fun. And forget your problems, your worries. We're here to have a good time. And then the party is over. And when the party ends, it really ends in this movie. And things take a turn for the worse. And I think that is, that's the flip that people aren't anticipating. And it is still shocking watching it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen this movie a thousand times. And every time I watch it, it still hits me right in the gut. Yeah, um, I agree with you. Um, I, uh, I have to say that's also the trajectory that a lot of my relationships take. But... Um, <laughs> Ouch! Too true. <laughs> too true. Um, most there was don't. You said though, most don't end in lobotomies, but sometimes I wish they did. Um, <laughs> uh, the one uh, thing I wanted anyway. to ask you though about this, because you brought up Nurse Ratchet mm-hmm. and her being a villain, and I think it's important to talk about this. AFI does list Nurse Ratchet as one of their top villains of all time in the movies, but I really want to break this down. Who is the real villain in this movie? Is it Nurse Ratchet or uh-huh. is it McMurphy? I mean, let's look at this. McMurphy, you know, is is the character who is the one penetrating into this seemingly normal running mental hospital, right? He's the mm-hmm. one causing the disturbances in their care in in their rehabilitation. I mean, he even technically kidnaps them and takes them on a fishing trip. You know, and even Billy's death in the end, can't we attribute that to McMurphy as well? It was his choice to throw the party. It was McMurphy's choice to bring the girl so Billy could get laid, you know? And I think it's important to remember as well that these people, these these patients that McMurphy is interacting with, um, minus the chief, these are mentally ill people, right? And I think mm-hmm. as you watch the film, you start to forget about that as McMurphy kind of brings their personalities out and McMurphy treats them like they're not mentally ill. But there's always a little something that that kind of grounds us back in reality, right? Like like the Cheswick, for example. You know, the way he interacts with McMurphy, they're, they're able to talk perfectly fine. They can have a conversation. You know, he's literate. He seemingly seems like he could function in society until his cigarettes are taken away and he has a complete breakdown. I am the little kid where you're going to have cigarettes kept for me like cookies and I want something dead. Take that right there. That's right. Now will you sit down? No, I won't. I won't. I want something dead. You know, and you see the shock on McMurphy's face when Cheswick has that meltdown, right? Like, McMurphy was not prepared for that. And I think the same thing happens when Billy 
gets caught by Nurse Ratchet and he starts to self-mutilate. You know, he's punching himself as he's being mm-hmm. dr- dragged away. And you see the look on McMurphy's face where he didn't realize quite what he was up against with Billy and what was actually boiling under the surface there. So I don't know. You kind of, you know, you take McMurphy out of the equation and none of this bad stuff happens. So I do kind of want to talk to you about that. Like, do we see Nurse Ratchet? As a villain, still, I don't know. I think there's gray area there. What do you think? No, I, I, um, I think that they're both in a gray area. Personally, um, I wanted to touch on this more. Actually, like, um, I, I use the word villain, but I feel like I should be really clear here. Mm-hmm. You don't really, for me, I didn't really uh, have negative feelings towards Nurse Ratched until she was kind of mocking Billy yes. um, and uh, threatening to tell his mom and stuff. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother's going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratched. At that point, it felt vicious because clearly she was she was egging him on and, and making him more and more erratic when that is not the course of action she should have been taking. But I will say, I guess in Nurse Ratchet's defense, um, you know she she is a human being who's trying to keep her cool and and in an award where it's probably very difficult to keep your cool and trying to run things as absolutely rigid as possible is probably the only way that she can uh, make it day to day. And when somebody comes in and is upsetting the order of the situation, it probably just makes you want to jump off a cliff, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and can cause you to have the very human reaction um, of uh, being mean, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, you're, you're acting out at that point. Maybe you're going a little crazy. I mean, I think that, you certainly see when she fights to help after Billy has committed suicide, she fights her way into the room and whatnot. You see her her break. You see, yes. I think, somebody who feels a little remorseful for what she probably already feels guilty about having caused. Um, but all of that said in her defense, she is the one who keeps Jack Nicholson in the ward, even knowing how he's upset the order. She is the one who says, oh, no, I think he should stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And yeah. if if she... It, it's really hard to suggest that there's any other motivation there than the fact that she kind of wants to push his buttons, you know? Well, okay, let's get into this now because I think you're kind of approaching a topic that I want to get into here, too, with the conversation of this female nurse in this very male-heavy hospital, right? Mm -hmm. This is a man's ward that she is in charge of. You know, I think there's something to be said about the the power struggle between men and women here and Mm. the fact that Nurse Ratchet is kind of holding on to that power she has over these men, right? I mean, you brought it up yourself, the fact that she kind of knows what could set these patients off at any time and she uses that power in the end with billy ultimately leading to his death so i I don't know there's some kind of 
struggle there too. You know what I mean? And it's that that like brings you, in you, some you really about, uncomfortable. Yeah, it makes it dark and dirty, right? But like, think about it too. You just brought up the fact that McMurphy she wants to keep him there. Do you think she knows McMurphy isn't crazy and she wants to keep him there because it's the only place that she can control him? You know, and then after he even exhibits this erratic behavior of having the party and getting all these people in trouble, she gives him a lobotomy. I mean, she has that power. She can take away <laughs> a man's like thought process with the the right of a with a you know a signature. Basically, it's all she needs to do to get these people lobotomized. Um, and that, you know, that brings in like, where does the crazy come from? Does the crazy come from? Does it is it something that's being um, exacerbated by the hospital mm-hmm. by Nurse Ratched? Is it something that just intrinsically exists in the person? Because yeah. you know, I think the the movie is arguing it feels like circumstance um, causes people to get worse, not better. You know, um, mm, yeah, the lack yes. of like the inability to watch a baseball game or whatever you know <laughs> yep. um i also think i what you brought up with the the male female dynamic is is really really interesting and i think it crystallizes something that i i felt a little bit uncomfortable about watching the movie because i was thinking like i can't tell i would love to hear um a female's opinion um on this film because I, I yes. can't tell if the sexual mores uh, and the sexual politics of this movie are are sending a, a bad message you know right because um, I can't say anything I can't say anything against the competency in the filmmaking and I certainly agree with the idea that we should uh, treat our mental patients humanely it is a little uncomfortable to have a woman in charge of all these men um Mm -hmm. basically because the way that you argued the way you brought up the argument a second ago like is this what's happening it almost sounds like um this is the struggle between male and female and if that's the message that the story is trying to give us then it's painting women in a very um inaccurate and unflattering light you know, like, Absolutely. it's almost like yes. you could say, I mean, like, think about what's going on in the 70s. This is the time of women's lib. Exactly. It's, yeah. Exactly. It's almost like all these men are saying, like, look what happens if we let women be in charge. They're going to, yeah. they're going to castrate. It's... They're going to, I mean, like, yeah. they're going to castrate the men. That's, if we're looking at it that way, then mm-hmm. suddenly the movie's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> To even think about I know, it, but it, no, absolutely, you're right. You know, yeah. it's something to think about. You know, there's a lot of different levels going on here, and and um, mm-hmm. yeah, like things at play. You know, there's a lot to take away from this movie for sure. You know, there's I read something too about how this is really a movie about communism, and you know, because Milos Forman, being from right. a communist country, talks about this when he was approaching the film. You know how he felt like these patients in this ward it's there's like a similarity between that and living in a communist territory where you're being told what mm-hmm. to do you're being told what to think you're being told what is allowed every single day so you lose yourself and then right. here you have McMurphy coming into the play telling these patients that there's so much more than what communism aka nurse ratchets 
has been enforcing upon them. You know, there's a different right. there's a there's a different way of life out there. You know, yeah. so there's that kind of going on as well, which I think is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I you agree. Know, it with seems you. like this mental institution setting can really play uh, can be used to play a lot of different, um, I guess, themes um, really really well. I love that. What do you think is the great scene of this movie? Um, who, uh, I, you go ahead and speak and I want to, I want to consider before I answer. What do you, what do you think? Okay. You stew on that. I would have to say it's the baseball scene, uh, which comes right at the midpoint of the movie and also the play as well. Um, and I will say as far as like play to movie adaptations like stage to screen this is really really well done which is why I think it's weird that the author Ken Kesey of the book didn't like the movie I don't understand why I think it pretty much is taken word for word from the his play but whatever that aside the baseball scene really stands out it's that moment where he finally fights back and it seems like it's the moment where all the patients get on his side Randall's side with him and they're starting to like believe the um kind of, oh, what's the word? Like, they're they're buying into his scheme, essentially, right? They're choosing to finally listen to him rather than listening to Nurse Ratchet. And I think that's an awesome turning point and such a cool way to visually show that. I think that is um, the best scene. And it's an ensemble scene. It has everybody involved, which is really, really cool, too. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really... Um, that's a really uh, good option there um i oh gee i like whenever um everything leading up to what happens with billy at the end um that's my ratchet (laughs) choice nurse ratchet coming upon the debauchery from the christmas party um doesn't like this doesn't is just a, like give you like secondhand anxiety and terror like when she walks in and you know everyone oh, is sure. just in so much fucking trouble. <laughs> I get yeah, like, it's like oh, like sweaty and hot when that scene comes on. I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! <laughs> like run for your life, run uh, for your life. <laughs> that's it's a little bizarre that you get sweaty and hot when that scene comes on. But anyway, <laughs> like a terrified. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, she really gets you going. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to bring up here, which I think is an interesting comparison to another movie that wins um, the top five awards, uh, one of the you know leading actor winners is not really in a lot of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. Yeah, both um, Louise Fletcher and Anthony Hopkins have... Sort of supporting performances, don't they? Yes, and in both yes. cases, they're also considered villains, quote-unquote. Yes. But they're much more complicated than just a villain. Um, I think it's interesting, because Louise Fletcher, you know, you could argue that she was a supporting role, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but her presence is obviously felt throughout the whole movie, which is why she's considered a lead. Um yes. It's just it's just interesting to me because her her screen time is probably what 20 30 minutes maybe yeah. um because uh, you know the Jack Nicholson dominates the movie but it, it's just interesting to me that that once again we have uh, how do we define a category 
you know. Totally, and that's that's the age-old question that I feel like Oscar pundits will be debating until the day that we all die. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's let's look at this. We have um, discussed in some way all five of the best picture nominees. Mm-hmm. Um, got Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Nashville, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, yes, I think it is. This is one of the most uniformly great categories in Oscar history um next year we get to talk about what my favorite my favorite group of movies ever but Mm -hmm. this is this is a really solid group of movies that are still considered great to this day um that appear on top 100 list all the time do you think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the out-and-out winner? Or do you give it to Jaws, or Nashville, or Barry Lyndon, or Dog Day Afternoon? I'm so glad you asked me this question. I am going to say something maybe controversial to some people. I don't okay. think it's the best picture of the year. I don't. Mm. For me, for me, the best film of 1975 is Dog Day Afternoon. Attica! What you Attica! Oh my god, I'm I'm so interested to hear what you have to say. Go ahead. <laughs> I oh god. It's hard to describe my reaction and how I felt after seeing Dog Day Afternoon for the first time. I was completely blown away. I remember like we watched it in college. I saw it at acting school and thinking it was one thing and then being totally blown away by what it actually was. Were you waiting for the you know, dog, th- and you're like, "Where, where is the <laughs> dog?" I, <laughs> I think I was expecting Pacino more as like Godfather Pacino or oh, right, like right. Serpico Pacino, you know. But mm-hmm. we're getting a very different Pacino here. I mean, we're getting a gay Pacino, which really was the first thing that shocked me. I was yeah. not expecting a queer representation in this movie. But what I think Dog Day Afternoon does so well that I love so much about movies and what they are able to do is they take a story, a very small story. You know, this is a real movie, Dog Day Afternoon. This really happened. These are real people. And you take somebody like his character who could be seen as like this villain. You know, he's robbing a bank. But you take that away and you humanize him and you show the audience why he's robbing the bank. You know, where does he come from? What put him in this circumstance? And Dog Day Afternoon does that better than probably any other movie I've ever seen. It is a rich character study on not just, you know, what gay people had to go through in the 70s, but poor people, you know? Like, this is... It's, right. it's a class warfare, you know, and this person is choosing to do all he knows what to do, which is rob a bank to pay for his lover's surgery. You know, I just think that mm-hmm. in its nuts and bolts, that's such a great um, struggle to deal with in a movie. And it's also funny, and I think that might catch people off guard as well, you know. Yeah. Um, it's really funny. It has a great sense of humor about it. And then in the end, it kind of punches you in the gut, just like Cuckoo's Nest does as well. So yeah, Dog Day Afternoon is my best movie of 75. What's yours? Um, I agree with you. Dog Day Afternoon. Um, yes, 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 uh, yes. 
I love Sidney Lumet, first of all. He's he's a favorite director of mine. Um, and we're going to really get into that next year. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, I, I think Dog Day Afternoon is such i love movies that take place over like a single day you know uh me too Um, good point yeah and um i love the suspense that is just built throughout this movie uh you know it's just like you're you're on edge the entire time the more you get to know you know the the quote-unquote bad guys robbing the bank and the more you learn about their story love that it's queer representation you know yes uh it's primitive in some forms, but this is mm-hmm. so far beyond and so much more humanizing than what we get in a lot of movies that were made that had queer representation from this period. Um, and it's just such... Um, it, it's something that is a thriller and a great ride of suspense, but at the same time as you mentioned, is saying so much about the struggles of everyday people and why people are driven to these types of links. And that is such a a beautiful, beautiful um, uh, sentiment and story. Um, I also really like the fact that the article that this movie is based on is called The Boys in the Bank, which... I mean, this is dealing with queer characters, and there's the uh, movie and play the boys in the band. They change one later yeah. la- letter. It becomes the boys in the bank. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, didn't, I didn't. I did not know that. I love that. I know. I just. I just was refreshing my memory on it. I saw. Oh, this is based on an article. Oh, it's called the boys in the bank. They're clearly doing a. <laughs> I see. <laughs> clearly, I see the clearly. illusion they're drawing there. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is. It is a truly, truly great film, um, and uh, I think it is the best movie of that year. Um, I would also argue that I, I probably would put Jaws and One Flew Over This Cuckoo's Nest kind of on an even plane of greatness, okay? Mm-hmm. I may yeah. even rank Jaws slightly ahead, because I think Jaws, you know, after talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest... You know, I think it's, I think One Flew of the Cougar's Nest is a movie that is just, has so many layers to it and so much depth and so much, so many ways that you can interpret it that you kind of have to put it in that great category. But I do think um, there's probably less problems or problematic elements to be found in Jaws, which has largely dated very, very well. Um, in history and in the way that it, you know, doesn't yeah. step on any um, toe, tone, toes in terms of, uh, you know, uh, right being problematic. Or, <laughs> yes, and and all of that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, but Jaws, I don't think needs a Best Picture Oscar to be remembered. If that makes any sense. Very like, true. Very true. Um, Sometimes I shy away from giving it to a box office bonanza, even when it's something as great as Jaws, just because, well, Jaws doesn't need to be the best picture of the year for everyone to still watch it. <laughs> you know, Very but true. if you give Very it to true. something like Dog Day Afternoon, p- 
people mm-hmm. might continue to discover it because they'll see that name on a list and they'll go, oh, what's that movie about? And it is the kind of movie that should be discovered over and over again. Um, Absolutely. But but I'm not upset about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest winning. I, I think it's a great fi- I think all five of the movies mm-hmm. that are in this category are actually great films. Um, yep. I don't think Nashville is a winner, um, but it is the only movie of its kind. You know. Very true, yes. And again, like it seems like Oscar loves to throw a musical in there every year, especially in the 70s and the 60s. And That's like this fills the bill. Musical for is a little... Music. You know, but... Well, you know, it's an interpretation there is music. of a musical. There is music. Yes. It has a great, yeah. a, another great ending as well, that movie. Yes, has, so. yes. Yeah, there are a lot of shocking <laughs> endings in these <laughs> movies. Shocking Definitely. endings was the... Um, was the, that was the rule this year? You had to have a shocking so. ending to be nominated for best picture. Um, Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let's get into what we're going to talk about next week. Well, Sam, if I remember correctly, um, mm-hmm. we long ago agreed that our next two-parter was going to be 1976. Am I correct? We sure did. That? You so, are correct. So next week we're going to talk about the four other nominees for best picture in 1976 that would be in case anyone is wondering um network uh all the president's men um uh i can't i bound, bound for glory, for glory. Mm-hmm. and um taxi driver. Uh, taxi driver yes so Correct. uh this is gonna be this is gonna be a fun time i have not seen bound for glory but the other four nominees are so heavily discussed in filmdom. So this should be Definitely. really interesting. Absolutely. So we'll start our two-parter next week as we discuss the four 1976 nominees for Best Picture. Join us then, everyone. Mm-hmm.